0: This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on the Book of Romans. And form to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn... Among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Thank God for his precious word this afternoon. Now, on the second Sunday in Advent, we are meditating on God's gift of peace. But as we know, the people of God are not immune. From the troubles that afflict this world, are they? The brokenness of the world that Jesus entered and that we still participate in. A world filled with chronic pain, physical disability, mental illness, financial worries, business failure, disappointments, stress, loneliness, and grief. That is the world that we live in. And the announcement of the gospel this morning is that this weeping will not last forever. The dawn is coming, brothers and sisters. The dawn is coming, and with God's dawn, the fulfillment of all our longings. And our text reminds us that even in our darkest times, and some of us are in very dark times indeed, even in these dark times, our hearts can still be at peace because this future glory that God promises, it's secure in his hands. And we have three verses this morning, and each of our three verses supplies its own ground for resting in this security. So let's begin with verse 28. And when Paul says that we know that all things work together for good, this knowledge is a hard one knowledge. It's a conviction that has been severely tested in prison and in shipwreck, in depression and in betrayal. And there were times, Paul says somewhere, that we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Paul knows about suffering, but he has emerged sure of one great fact, that God is working out All things for good. Not only for Paul, but for all of us who trust and love God. The wonderful truth of this precious text is that our Heavenly Father is directing and orchestrating every last event in our lives for some ultimately good purpose. There is nothing that has happened or is happening, or will happen in your life that falls outside of God's control. Note well, all things. Now if it was only some things, or even most things that God was in control of, we could never rest without deep uneasiness. But God is working all things all things without exception to our good. Now, we also should notice that our text does not say that all these things are good, right? Only that they are being worked for good. And God often allows things in our lives that are in themselves evil in order to work out good for us. There's a A great example in the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. Here's Joseph, Abraham's great-grandson, and his his ten jealous older brothers fling him into a pit and sell him as a slave to the Midianite traders. And as if slavery wasn't bad enough, Joseph's master falsely accuses him of raping her, and Joseph is sent to rot for years and years in an Egyptian prison. And then, finally, Joseph's divine gift of dream interpretation launches him into the prime minister's chair. And now, because of famine, his brothers travel down to Egypt looking for food. And to their horror, they discover that they are now in the power of their brother that they had so brutally wronged. And in Genesis 50, Joseph assures them, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. The brothers are not off the hook, are they? What they did was evil, but behind their will, behind their intention, behind what they meant, is another and more powerful will that overrides what they did and turns it to good. It's like some of these martial arts, you know, jiu-jitsu that turns your opponent's energy and force against themselves. That is exactly what God is doing. And as someone remarked centuries ago, God often draws a straight line with a crooked stick. And he uses some crooked sticks indeed in our lives, doesn't he? So while Paul says that we know that God is working all things for good, notice that he doesn't say that we know how God is working all things for good. And we will experience many things that are extremely difficult to reconcile with the love, wisdom, and power of God. And we often get ourselves into a heap of trouble when we try to explain to other people how God's at work in their lives. Our Heavenly Father is inviting us to trust where we cannot understand. God rarely gives us the reasons for what he's doing. But he tells us who he is, and who God is, is good and faithful. When my daughter was two or three years old, she burned her hand badly on the stove. And I immediately grabbed her, and I rushed her to the sink, and I turned on the cold water, and I held her hand underneath to stop the burning. And held is really too weak a term, because Solange was twisting and writhing against me, against the counter, and I had to use an iron grip to force her little hand under the water. She was screaming in pain, and not only in pain, but in shock and rage that her daddy, she thought loved her, was inflicting terrible pain upon her. And I have to tell you, it was an awful moment as a father, to have to do that for my daughter. But letting Solange go would only have been indulging my own weakness. Instead of doing what she actually needed, in that moment, you see, loving my daughter meant I had to steal my heart against her cries and force her to undergo a pain she could not understand. Good parents sometimes must make choices their children cannot understand. And God, the best of parents, must make choices that are often unfathomable to his own dear children. Our understanding is so severely limited, Paul says, that we don't even know what to pray for. But there is one thing we can know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. But the verse doesn't end there. Lest, Lest we somehow think that God's providential care is conditioned on how much we love him. As if to head off that misunderstanding, Paul goes on to describe Christians as those who are called according to God's purpose. See, we have something, thank God, we have something much stronger to rely on this afternoon than our love for God, and that is God's love for us. And that is the only foundation strong enough to support true peace. Now, the call of God, Paul's talking about here, is not the general invitation of the gospel by which all men and women of every nation are freely invited to come to Christ. See, if that's what he meant here, The description, those who are called, would make no sense. It's a special description of Christians. This call Paul's talking about is the powerful inward summons by which God brought us into the kingdom. And this is what Paul's talking about in Romans 4, when he spoke of Abraham's God as the one who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, And we know that God does not call the rich and the powerful and the wise to his kingdom, but he calls us the weak and the foolish and indeed the very dead. So it's clear from verse 28 that those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose are the same people. Do you love God? If you love God, then surely You are called according to his purpose. And we could spend days and days as a church, one after another, coming up here and sharing our testimonies. And everyone would be radically different. But for all their differences, they would have this in common. God called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And God called us according to his purpose. Calvin Coolidge, the American president from the 1920s, What he enjoyed doing was sitting in the Oval Office and just pressing every single button on his desk so he could enjoy all of his aides and bodyguards rushing in at the same time. But God, my friends, is not playing games. He calls us with a great end in view. So what is this purpose for which he's called us? And what is this good for which he's working all things together? God is doing many different things in each of our lives. But we can follow up all those threads to one grand design. God aims to conform us to the image of his son. And this is no idle wish. God has fully committed himself by foreknowing and predestining us. Listen to verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. He conformed to the image of his son might be the first among many brothers. And so verse 29 brings us to our second ground for trusting that our future glory is secure. God has predestined us to reflect and exalt his son. But first, a little explanation is in order. What, what does it mean that those whom he foreknew, he also predestined? And some have explained this to mean that God knows ahead of time who's going to believe in Jesus and then predestines them so that the key decision really lies in our hands and God's only fast-forwarding the tape to see what happens and then rewinding it and predestining us in eternity past. That's not in the text and you would have to look very, very hard to find it there. Paul doesn't say that God foreknew our faith or our worthiness or our good behavior, but that he foreknew us. He foreknows us as people. And in the Old Testament, to know someone was a deeply relational term, not just intellectual. So much so that as you read the Old Testament, you come across the expression, so-and-so went in and knew his wife. It's a euphemism for sexual intimacy. And God's knowledge of his people is like this. In Amos 2, for example, God tells Israel, you only have I known of all the peoples, all the families of the earth. Obviously, God's not ignorant of the existence of Egypt or Assyria or the surrounding nations, but it was Israel alone that he had chosen to enter into covenant relationship with. And this is right in line with Romans, 5, Romans 9, which we'll hear soon, that, where Paul tells us that God did not reject Israel, whom he foreknew. So if this is true then perhaps John Murray is right when he says that foreknew could be translated as foreloved. A love not based on the worthiness of the elect, but on God's free and sovereign choice. And so there's something actually prior to divine predestination, and that is divine love. As Paul says in Ephesians 1, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. And so if the word predestination sounds harsh and repellent, it's because we've divorced it from the love of God, which is its root. Now, this is one of the classic texts on predestination, but Paul never introduces predestination as a topic for mere theologizing or philosophical debate. And so we're going to try to resist that this afternoon. See, the mystery of God's predestinating love is a subject for profound worship, gratitude, and humility. And in Romans 8, it's a source of deep consolation for God's children. See, when we feel weak and overwhelmed, not least by these hearts of ours which are so prone to wander, We can remember that our names have been written in the Lamb's book of life since before the foundation of the world. Now, yes, of course, you should and you must believe and obey and persevere. And the reason you should work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, Paul says in Philippians, is that it's God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his own good pleasure. Now, I'm not sure how divine sovereignty and human responsibility fit together. And I'm not going to be so foolish as to try to solve that mystery for you, but the Bible clearly teaches both. What I do know is that if God has predestined you to be a guest at the wedding feast of the Lamb, nothing in heaven or earth or hell itself will keep your chair from being filled. But we're predestined not merely to arrive, but to be transformed. The purpose of predestination is so that we might be conformed to the image of God's Son. So if you walk past the construction site, and there are many in Tbilisi, you might not see much more than a big old hole with a fence around it. But on the poster outside, you can inspect the artist's rendition of the completed project. Perhaps a completed, perhaps a gleaming skyscraper filled with apartments and elegant furniture. So you or I might not be much more than muddy pits right now, but we can hold in our hand the artist's rendition from all four sides, the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So if you're wondering, what will I look like in the kingdom that is to come? The answer is, you will bear an uncanny resemblance to Jesus, You will still be yourself, but in your own unique way, you are going to reflect the brilliance and glory of God's own Son. And the great saints of God, down through the ages, have disagreed about many things, not the least of which is predestination. But there is one thing they all shared, a great hunger to be like Christ, They loved Jesus so much they could imagine no higher destiny for themselves than becoming a living reflection of God's own son. And so this is what God is up to when he's working all things together for our good. The great sculptor stands before these blocks of unpromising stone and with frequent glances at his son he takes his hammer and chisels and gets to work on our lives and there are rough blows and there are gentle polishings but one day at last god will step back with pleasure from his finished artwork and behold and say behold it is very good but perhaps that's too cold of an image because what God is after is not a dead sculpture, but a living family. See, our conformity to Christ, our personal likeness to Jesus, is not actually the end goal. It will happen, Paul tells us, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And I should add, the Greek includes sisters as well. See, we are going to be clothed with glory, not primarily for our own sakes but so that God might honor his well-beloved son. Nothing gives the father more pleasure than glorifying his son. And the son will not be glorified by being the firstborn merely among a few brothers. Many brothers. This is one of the great missional texts in the entire Bible. God's great mission to call many sons to glory. Now, I love that it's anchored in God's passion to glorify his son, because if my future glory was only for my sake, I might well have doubts, because I'm a pompous, selfish, and tiresome person very often, and it's not hard to imagine God regretting his choice, changing his mind, and casting me to the side. But since my salvation is bound up with the exaltation of God's only begotten, my heart can be at peace. If I am Christ's, God cannot reject me without rejecting Christ. And that is the one thing we may be sure he will never do. So how does God actually bring this destiny about? In verse 30, Paul writes, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. See, God's not content merely to predestine in eternity past and then sit back and wait to see, oh, who shows up in eternity future? He is powerfully at work in every step along the road to salvation. So here's our final ground for the security of our future glory. God will certainly call, justify, and glorify every last one of those whom he has predestined. Now, first, Paul says, those whom God predestined, he also called. Each of the many brothers and sisters that God has chosen for Christ must and will hear the invitation of the gospel which is why god has also predestined and ordained preachers and missionaries and evangelists and ordinary christians to go out and announce the good news of the gospel to every creature under heaven but even if we fail in the mission god will not fail he has his own ways and there are remarkable stories in the muslim world about people who are far away from any kind of christian or any kind of missionary having strange dreams of Jesus, the Messiah, appearing and telling him, telling him they must believe and follow him. In fact, the, the most remarkable story I heard was of a stonemason somewhere in the Middle East, Iraq perhaps, and he cut open a stone with his pickaxe and it split apart and he read on the inside the words, Jesus is Lord. God can make the very stones cry out, if we fail to give praise to him among the nations. The point is, as Paul will later write from prison, the word of God is not bound. God sends his word forth, and it will accomplish the purpose for which he has sent it. Then, Paul goes on, those whom he called, he also justified. All those whom God summons by this mysterious inward call of the Holy Spirit... Will put their faith in Christ and be justified. That is, God will declare them to be in the right before Him. Now, notice it's not all those whom we call who are justified, because we all know from experience, don't we, how feeble our witness is, merely human words. But when Christ stands before the tomb of someone who is dead in sin and calls out, Lazarus, come forth! have no doubt, that person will come forth and follow Christ. But, thank God, when we're called, we're not left to our own devices after that. Paul goes on to say that those whom God justified, he also glorified. Or glorification is about what will happen when Christ returns and raises our bodies from death to immortality and we are fully conformed to the image of the Son. And it's a transformation so striking that will be almost unrecognizable. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians fifteen, what is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory, it is sown in raised in power, and then he goes on to say that just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, so we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, Jesus Christ now, what might have struck you as you looked at this verse, is that Paul strangely uses the past tense to describe this future event. Those whom God justified, he also glorified past. But as I look around, we all seem, we all seem pretty ordinary still, don't we? I don't see anyone here who is glowing with unbearable brilliance. But, Such is Paul's certainty of our glorification that he speaks of it as something as good as done. If God has foreknown you, if he has predestined you, if he has called you, and if he has justified you, then surely, 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 he will sustain you and preserve you faithful to the end. If salvation was ours to lose, we would surely lose it. I guarantee you, I am such an absent-minded person that not once but twice I've come home on the bus, walked in the door, and realized that I left the car downtown. <laughs> I forget my TBC card at Paul so frequently I know exactly what drawer in the cash register they keep it in. So I'm, re- I'm relieved that God loves me enough To hold on to my salvation for me. He keeps it on a shelf too high for our foolish little fingers to reach. And Solange was reminding me when I was telling her about her burning her hand, she reminded me, well dad you shouldn't have let me be on the chair by the oven, should you? (laughs) That's where I'm not like God. And God is not such a bad parent, he lets his children wander by stoves and into traffic in vulnerable situations where they might destroy themselves because of their own foolishness. Our future glory is secure because it's held in God's strong hands. Our life is hid with Christ in God. Christ is our salvation. He is our life. And as an old Puritan once said, if the head is above the water, the body cannot drown. If the head's above the water, the body cannot drown. We are already glorified because Christ is already glorified. And he sits at the Father's right hand, clothed in unbelievable splendor and glory. And as he is, we surely will be. We are those whom God foreknew those whom God has predestined, those whom God has called, those whom God has justified, and those whom he has glorified. Jesus came at Christmas to bring peace to a troubled world and to troubled people. And it will take a second and final coming to put all things right again. But, as we wait in our confusion and our weakness and our difficulty, our hearts can be at peace. Hearing our good master's words, fear not little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that we sinners have a glorious future and also that that future is completely safe in your hands. Thank you for reminding us that you have long been working out all things for our good. And you will not stop working, Lord, until we stand before you rejoicing in glory. You will turn our pain to praise. And so we ask that you would continue to give us what we need to sustain us on our journey. And Lord, for those who are here this afternoon struggling in deep pain, weakness, and confusion, mere words are not enough shine the cheering light of your spirit into their hearts we ask this Lord in Christ's name and for his sake amen this podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship learn more about us online at TICF-Georgia.org thanks for listening